Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. On the 7th of February, 1814, three little boys, the oldest of them just nine years old, used a penknife to pry open the window of a shoemaker's shop. Having crept inside, the boys made off with a pair of boots. They celebrated their heist with a meal of oranges and nuts they swiped from another store on the way home. But unfortunately for the boys, George Vaughan, a Bow Street runner, the precursor to London's police force, had witnessed their actions. And just a week later, they stood trial in London's Old Bailey. In his closing arguments, the prosecutor found it necessary to point out that they'd opened, but not broken, the glass window. This small detail had little effect on the judge. He sentenced the three boys, an eight-year-old and his nine-year-old friends, to death. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that this is a rather draconian punishment for what seems like a rather petty crime, not to mention the fact these were children. But Judge Sylvester wasn't some kind of bloodthirsty maverick. He was simply following the letter of the law. And in the era from the 1700s into the middle of the 19th century, criminals in England were subject to what became known as the Bloody Code. When you hear stories like this one, and consider that over 200 crimes were capital offences, it's easy to imagine that Britain in the 1700s and 1800s was a place where execution was carried out on an industrial scale. But this was an era before we had a professional police force. It was also a time before we had large-scale prisons. So how exactly was the Bloody Code enforced? Dr John Wallace is a senior lecturer in criminology in the School of Social Sciences at Liverpool Hope University in England. Among his works is the book The Bloody Code in England and Wales, 1760-1830. He's a leading expert in this field of history, and so I turn to him, seeking more information about the origins of the Bloody Code. What you had was what we called in retrospect old policing, and old policing are things like parish constables, and watchmen they weren't like a modern police force investigate stuff what they would do is they would maintain order so it's all about maintaining order by having a presence there they would investigate but they were paid very little or or often nothing at all so what if they were asked to investigate like my sheep's been stolen they wouldn't have thought well i'm going to investigate this what they would have needed is for a victim to say, okay, my sheet's been stolen and I wanted to pay you X amount to investigate. They provided a very basic service maintaining order and then anything beyond that was like a private detective where you'd say, okay, I need to go to the next county, it's going to cost this much, I need to do a deposition, it's going to cost this much. On paper, they had a very limited role. 
some of them were willing to go above that role if the money was available for that. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but generally, it wasn't a police force like we would have now where a sheep's been stolen, I would investigate that. He would only investigate it if he was told by a victim and wanted to investigate it, he needs the money to go and do it. With that being said then, in terms of the standard of determining guilt or innocence, I mean, was it very high? Let, let's say that someone's sheep has been stolen and you as a victim, uh, you, you, you've managed to get the, the constable engaged with it and you've caught the culprit red-handed. What would usually happen is illegal. But what would happen is the, the constable would tend to say, because they want to keep things peaceable in, in the locality, well, you've got your sheep back now, why don't you get an apology and move on from it? If you say, no, I want to press a charge, you then go to a magistrate, that's where the next bit of money comes in. And then the magistrate would say, again, why don't you kind of like, like deal this informally? And if you said, no, I want my day in court, then the next stage is it would, it would go to court. And you'd have various stages. The first stage is the grand jury. So the grand jury would look at the bill that's been drawn up by the magistrate and you with witness statements. They would ask questions. They would bring in uh, people to question them. And on the basis of that, they decide a true bill, therefore we can try it, or no true bill, there's no case to answer for here. And then it's tried, and then the jury get to make their decision. It's recognisable to what we have today. So in that sense, we have the impression they legitimately try to have some kind of decent standard. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's nearer before DNA, which obviously is, is a big thing. But in terms of a criminal justice process, it was a robust process. There are parts of it which, to our mind, seem irrational. Part of the way in which judges were a lot more proactive and a lot more interventionist in cases it was a legal process that built up that's built up in England and Wales over centuries. So it, it, it was sophisticated on it in its own terms. People often talk about in that era, crime explosion. But was that just in London or was that everywhere? This is the thing that then as now, the elite commentators were based in London. The caveat we always say is we can never know how much crime took place. All we can know is how much crime is reported or how much crime goes before a enters into the criminal justice system. We do know that in the 1750s in London, there was a concern about more violent crime and more murders. Well, 1740s, early 1750s, that's why the government brings in the Murder Act and exhibiting and anatomization as part of a capital uh, penalty. We know that after the... Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815, there was a perception that crime was rising and that particular forms of crime were rising tended to be undertaken by discharged soldiers. But as always, it's a catch-22. So what we find is after 1815, there's a rise in indictments. But does that mean that because that's because there's more people committing crime and being caught, or does it mean that the victims, are, because they believe there's a crime wave, are more willing to come forward, and also that grand jurors more likely to say yes, we want to try this to try and keep things in order. So it's always catch twenty two, but there definitely was a perception at certain points in this period, most of in the seventeen fifties and the eighteen, the period of the Napoleonic Wars ended, that crime a particularly violent crime was rising. Simon Devereux of the University of Victoria in Canada is a leading researcher with regards to the bloody code. Among other things, he's created a searchable website called The Old Bailey Condemned 1730 
1837. Simon, in terms of the bloody code, was there any precedent for that type of draconian system in any other country, or was this unique to Britain? Well, as far as the letter of the bloody code is concerned, like the the array of criminal offenses that carry the death penalty, that was pretty general in the Anglo-American world. Most of the then British colonies in America had roughly the same body of crimes as well. The difference is that the American colonies did not hang anywhere near as many of the capital offenders as England did, and especially as the old Bailey did. London is the worst by far. I once wrote an article in which I described the work I was doing on the old Bailey. I called it the bloodiest code because London really executed more people in absolute terms than frankly any major town I can find either in Western Europe or in colonial North America at that time. The Americans got rid of their bloody codes soon after the revolution partly because they they were reading Enlightenment philosophers, that kind of thing, and they were impressed by the arguments against it. But also, uh, as part of a number of American historians have pointed this out, as part of a self-conscious effort to differentiate themselves from the mother country that was. They wanted to be distinct and better. And by the way, there's actually an argument that the English suddenly adopted and became very interested in anti-slavery in the late 1780s, as an effort to kind of regain moral prestige that they had lost to their former colonies in America. Mm-hmm. So these, uh, these arguments go back and forth. But by the time we get to the early 19th century, when we're in the last years of the Bloody Code in London, England is really unique. Most European nations don't have anything like this kind of array of capital offenses. Uh, it might look different if, if you're focusing on particular offenses, that actually are much more likely to get somebody hanged, as opposed to certain offenses that are just almost guaranteed to get somebody pardoned, then it might actually seem roughly the, well, similar between England and the rest of Europe. But England is actually kind of trailing by, uh, by the early 19th century, and a lot of people are pointing that out in Parliament mm-hmm. when they argue that it's time to get rid of these things. So in London, you said, obviously, that Old Bailey had a huge number of executions and death penalty cases was that driven by population or was that driven just by being much harsher than other places were relative to their populations it is certainly driven by population by the second half of the 18th century london is in absolute terms the biggest city in western europe possibly the only city sort of in Western Europe that might have been larger, we don't know, is Istanbul. But it's definitely larger than any other major city in Europe. And it's also unique in Europe in its proportion of the national population. Throughout the 18th century, London contained about 11% of the entire population of England. There is no other national capital anywhere in Europe that has that large a proportion of its entire country's population. So in both absolute terms and in in terms of cultural experience, London really is enormous. Uh, And it naturally gives rise to an enormous amount of crime. Now, there are lots of arguments amongst historians about how much of the crime might be real and how, how much is driven by what we call moral panics. There's a huge newspaper press 
in England, and it's relatively unfettered by comparison with most other places. Crime is a popular item of news, and there is an argument out there amongst some historians that, that this makes people uh, more sensitive to the threat of crime, relatively speaking, by comparison with the actual amount of crime that there is. But on the other hand, in the second half of the 18th century, certainly, it's very hard to find any examples of people who are actually wrongfully convicted. There's always a few. And that is important, too, because one of the arguments that reformers made was that the real problem with having this bloody code was that the people who were the victims of crime, who, by the way, in, in this era are personally responsible for prosecuting it. If you're the victim, you're the one who has to bear the costs of tracking down the person who robbed you and paying all the legal costs of, of prosecuting them. Well, a lot of people were saying, reformers were saying that uh, a lot of people didn't actually want somebody who had robbed them or merely stolen from them actually to pay with their lives for that offense. And so they might not actually be prosecuting people at all. They might just be letting, letting it go. They might be conniving with local officials to get the charge brought in at a lower level. A lot of reformers were basically saying that if you really want the most effective system of punishment, which is to persuade every potential criminal that they're going to be caught and that they're going to be punished, you've got to get the death penalty out of the picture because prosecutors and juries don't like it. And in fact, when we start to see repeals of major capital offenses in the 19th century, starting with pocket picking in 1808, almost immediately see a huge uptick in the number of prosecutions and convictions for it. And it's quite clear that the reformers were right. And so picking up on one thing you said there about there wasn't a police force as such, so people were responsible for prosecuting themselves, that immediately makes me think then that there's an inbuilt bias there to it's going to be a lot easier for somebody wealthy to prosecute someone poor than somebody poor to try and prosecute someone wealthy. Do we see that reflected right. in terms of the types of people being put on trial? There's a historian named Peter King who I think has done more work on this than anyone else. Yes, it's true that the vast majority of people we see being prosecuted, certainly for forms of theft, are people who are relatively poor. Bob Shoemaker and Tim Hitchcock, the guys who digitize the Old Bailey trials and have that big website, they have a parallel website called London Lives in which they've demonstrated that a lot of people who are being swept up in the net of the criminal law are also showing up in poor houses and on other appeals uh, for relief of poverty. Certainly in terms of the types of crimes that are often prosecuted as non-capital forms of theft, and that exists, I think you certainly find that poverty is a major driver. There's a little bit of wiggle room when we get to the more serious forms of theft that in involve um, violence. Some of these people are poor. Some of them are trying to exploit resources that are available for relief of poverty. But there's no doubt that there's also a fair amount of organized crime and especially in and around London, just because there's so much wealth. There's, I mean, there's stories about taking a carriage in and out of London, and, and people literally describe it as though it's like you know, the risk of going into the jungle or something like that. While the middle and upper classes had greater resources to prosecute crime, they were also more likely to commit certain types of offences, as John Wallace explains. There were some crimes that were committed more by elite people. 
And the best examples of these are monetary offences and fraud and forgery. Basically, what we'd generally now call fraud and forms of white-collar crime. And these were crimes that were engaged in by middle-class people, and that middle-class people were also likely to be the victim of. So forging a bill of exchange. You'd essentially try and buy something on credit, not having the money for it. Or you'd have in your possession a document like that that was forged. And the thing with this is, this is an area for standardised banknotes. So you may have a banknote, you think this is a valid banknote, actually it's forged. So it was, a, it was a huge kind of concern amongst middle class people because they were the victims and because they were the like to be accused of it. And what you find is the execution rate for these crimes are even higher than the standard ones like burglary and the standard things like horse stealing or um, uh, highway robbery. There's the two reasons. Firstly, most crimes were prosecuted privately. So my sheet's been stolen, I'm going to go to court to prosecute it. But if you're accused of a monetary offence, the royal men send their own legal team to prosecute it. And because it was taken so seriously, you were more likely to be executed than you were for these other offences, for the quite simple reason that it's the beginnings of the kind of capitalist, monetarist economy. And if we can't trust banknotes, and if we can't trust bills of exchange, the whole system falls flat. That's why the government is very, very key on dealing with it. While London and the Old Bailey was clearly at the epicentre of crime and punishment in this era, I was curious to see how the bloody code was enforced through the rest of Britain. The further you move out of London, and the further you go north and west into Wales and, and south in, into Cornwall, the more you find that the laws that break down as such but what you find is a completely different experience of capital punishment. So, for example, if you lived in London in this period, then you'd probably see three or four executions a year, maybe even more, and of those, you maybe see up to a dozen people executed. So if you live in London, you're going to have a particular view of what the bloody code is. But if you lived in Wales, if you lived in Anglesey, you could live to be 80 and see one execution for property offences. And what you find is, what I found in the book, is that... The further you move away from London and the home counties, the more that the execution rate begins to drop away significantly. North Wales and Wales generally, and once you move further uh, than Lancaster and Yorkshire into like County Durham and the Westmoreland and Cumberland and down to Cornwall, you find relatively few people being executed. This is one reason why the bloody code began to roll back, because there was a realisation that the law wasn't being applied uniformly and that various offences that were on paper capital offences, like sheep stealing or capital stealing, people had been executed in certain places for decades for it. So that was a foot in the door. So those people wanted to roll it back and say, well, we've got all these capital statutes that are no longer being used. Why don't we just get rid of them? And that was the kind of the thin end of the wedge that opened up the door for reform over time. Did we actually see cases where people were actually going to trial being accused of the crime and not getting the death penalty, as opposed to just less people prosecuting? It's two different things. What we see is, firstly, a different pardon rate. The pardoning rate ran from, in this period, ran from about 9% up until 16 17%. So if you were living in a certain area, 
on the, on the periphery of England and Wales, you'd only really find 9% of people with executed for property offences. Whereas if you lived in Ken or London, it's going to be significantly higher. So what you find is judges who operate in the Old Bailey, they know that people are sentenced to death, more of them, they can lead to be executed. But they know if they go on their, on their assize circuit to Westmoreland, for example, they know they've got to calibrate. They can't say, well, we're going to leave 20% of the people to be executed. The, the population won't allow that. The other thing is the juries also play an important role because juries can say, not guilty, obviously, they can say guilty or guilty of a lesser offence. And this is something else. In Wales and in parts of the country that don't approve of the death penalty, what juries will do is engage in what's called pious perjury. And what they will do is they'll say, this person's accused of burglary, but we find him guilty of larceny. And that means that his, his life's spared. And this, we call it pious perjury, but it's technically a form of fraud, because what they would say is, Joe Bloggs is accused of breaking into someone's house and taking all their tableware. And what the jury would say is, no, we don't find them guilty of that, what we find them guilty of is stealing the tableware as if they're walking down the street and the windows opened and the tableware fell out onto the street. Juries generally were keen to do that and on the periphery, particularly in Wales. There's a great story where a jury was asked by the judge, do you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? And they said, not guilty, my love, but you better not do it again. In your research, did you find any evidence of disparate treatment thinking perhaps women, children, vulnerable people, perhaps being given lighter sentences and working able men, perhaps receiving harsher sentences? What you tend to find is they use this vague statement of favourable circumstances. So they would say, when I was in uh, Kent recently, I left Joe Bloggs behind. Since then, a favourable circumstances have arisen and I pardoned him for transportation. Now, fable circumstances is a kind of vague term that we don't know what it means, but it seems it's just basically the judge has a kind of change of heart. But when judges gave reasons for why they're going to pardon people, the reasons they would give are, it's only a first-time offence. They're only a young offender. But the problem with this is that, well, you knew they were a young offender when you saw them in court, so like, what's changed? Or if we execute this person, they've got a huge family, uh, the local ratepayers have to pay for, the, for their for their upkeep. So there are these variety of factors, which like age, previous good conduct, comes from a good family, it was only a first-time offence, there's no violence being used. These are all things that judges would say, I'm going to change my mind because of this. There were other factors that were much more important, that were important for condemning. So the judge said, well, this is an old offender. This is somebody who has four. Therefore, don't, therefore, this is a person we want taken out of circulation. It's a particularly violent crime. Uh, it's a crime that involves violence and fear. Or uh, that it's a crime that regularly takes place. So, so, so the judge would say, I visited uh, Maidstone and I was told, this offender, uh, we finally caught him. Uh, he's been committing crime for, for decades and we've got to get rid of him. And also the crime that, that he engaged in was particularly violent and he was engaging in, in burglary and there's a load of burglary going on therefore we need to send a message to people that burglary shouldn't be allowed because it was a system based on deterrence you needed the criminals to be executed to be ones who made a really good example so a young guy who's a previous good character 
fell off the wagon, committed a form of theft without violence. He's a good example. But a burglar who's known to be violent, who's known to have a really long and awful career, makes a really good example. So it's all about who makes the best example. That's why women, unless it was murder, tended not to be executed because they did make really good examples. Like me, you'll probably be relieved to hear the three young boys sentenced to death that I mentioned at the start of this episode ultimately avoided the ultimate sanction. The youngest boy faced seven years transportation. The two older boys, just nine, were sentenced to transportation for life. But for those who did face the ultimate sanction, what was in store for them? Simon, I noticed on your website it was detailing executions from the Old Bailey and generally hanging seems to have been the method used. But there were references to people being burnt at the stake. It was unclear reading it if they were actually killed that way or if they were hanged and then burnt posthumously. Excellent question. First of all, it's all women. And the only women who are burnt at the stake are women who are convicted of treason. Either high treason, which is, you know, the political crime. But usually in the 18th century, what that really means is coining, creating a false coin. If it's precious metal. It's treason if you're falsifying gold or silver coin. But if it's base coin, like pennies, copper, that's not treason. The other form of treason, though, this is very interesting, is what's called petty treason. And the most common form of petty treason is a wife who murders her husband. And the idea is that the husband is sort of a king in his own house. The wife is entirely subject to him in law. And therefore, a wife who murders her husband is effectively rebelling against her lawful authority. So that's what gets women burnt at the stake. Until the late 17th century, it appears to have been common for women who are being burnt at the stake for treason to be burned alive. It's very hard to get really accurate evidence on this point. It's very clear by the late 17th century, certainly in London where this happens a fair bit, it's very clear by the late 17th century that it's becoming common for women to be strangled first. The last woman that we know for certain was burned alive was a particularly hideous murderess named Catherine Hayes, who was executed, I think in 1726, for murdering her husband in connivance with a couple of manservants in the house. The conventional wisdom used to be that the executioner was drunk or otherwise horrified by what he had to do and failed to strangle her. But one of the interesting things that I actually discovered going through the government records was that in fact the executioner was ordered to let her burn alive the government actually stepped in and said we're going to make an exception uh, for this woman but clearly it was understood to be an exception by then so the conventional rule was to strangle women first and finally it gets abolished there's an attempt to abolish it in 1786 And it's actually abolished as a punishment in 1790. And I think that that is very clearly because the place of execution gets changed. In 1783, they stop having the march all the way out to the edge of the city, Tyburn, where they would hang people. uh, And they hang them immediately outside of Newgate Prison itself downtown. And I think that what happened is that the sensory experience of a woman being burned at the stake was simply intolerable in the middle of a busy urban center in a way that it wasn't at the semi-rural margins. So they have the experience of burning a couple of women at the stake. They try to abolish the penalty in 1786. It fails. 
but then there's a couple of more women burnt at the stake and people say okay that's enough uh 1780 they get 90 rather they get rid of it they don't by the way get rid of the definition of the crime treason and indeed petty treason in particular remain capital offenses for women petty treason isn't abolished until 1828 but the punishment of it is abolished and clearly it's abolished because by this time executions all over england are being moved into the urban centers and there's just no way that you can burn a woman at the stake amongst other things you don't want to get into horrific details some people might want you to i guess but try to imagine how long it actually takes to burn a body to ash just using wooden faggots as they called them mm-hmm. when they piled around their feet even with whatever accelerants that they could come up with it takes a long time it's not easy to burn a body you know a modern cremation takes place under extremely high in high pressure furnaces so yeah. it gives you an idea of how horrific the the physicality of the experience must have been you referred to London earlier as having the bloodiest code. Post-sentencing, what process was there that could see somebody who has been sentenced to death actually avoiding the noose? Everyone who's been sentenced to death waits until all of the trials at a given sessions, and there's eight per year, waits until the end of the trial, and then they're all made to march into court, and they are collectively sentenced to death. The only exception to this rule after 1752 are people convicted of murder because they're actually supposed to be hanged within two to three days of conviction. But everybody else, in they come as a group, they're all sentenced to death and then they're sent back to Newgate and they sit around waiting to find out what's going to happen to them. And what happens is that the senior sentencing officer at the Old Bailey, who's a, a judge known as the recorder, he goes to the king and the cabinet, the leading ministers of government in Britain, and they have a meeting that comes to be called the recorder's report, in which the recorder discusses every capital case with the king and his ministers, and the cabinet decides who's going to be hanged and who's going to be pardoned. In London, everyone gets their case reviewed. By the early 19th century, people are suggesting that this is a very odd way of doing things, that it amounts to almost like a second trial. And uh, and eventually it's abolished in 1837, in part because people think that the way things are done should be consistent through the entire country. But in London, that's how it's done until 1837. The king and his cabinet make the decisions, and then something called the dead warrant, very nice, is sent over to Newgate, and it basically gives out the names of everyone who's actually going to be hanged. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what a suspenseful night it is when people know that the dead warrant is coming down. So another thing that makes me wonder then is thinking about it from a politician's always kind of concerned with their own interests. If then there's any indications that at points in time based on the public mood, the government felt the need to make examples of a bunch of people and then other times maybe they're more lenient. Did you come across any trends like that at all? The key trend that was identified a long time ago by all kinds of historians, really starting with the man who was my supervisor, a guy named John Beattie, is warfare. Throughout the 18th century, or the long 18th century as we like to call it, Britain goes to war against France on an almost global level several times. 1689 to 1714, 
1739 to 1748, 1775 to 83, because the American Revolutionary War ultimately pulls in France and a bunch of European powers. And then finally, again, 1789 to 1815. Every time a war ends, there's a huge surge in criminal convictions. My supervisor and a bunch of other people have pointed out that it's, it's about, about the enormous economic dislocation that follows rapid, large-scale demobilizations. Uh, and the economy has to convert from a wartime footing to a peacetime footing. So it takes a long time for all of these usually young men, many of whom have become accustomed to violence, to be reabsorbed into the economy. And you can see huge upticks in both the amount of crime that's being prosecuted and convicted and the number of people who are being executed. There's only a few occasions on which you can identify periods of high crime and relatively high execution levels that are not driven by war, but they do exist. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a period in the 1760s, for instance, when there's some harvest failures, there's food shortages, and there's um, extensive disorder in parts of the country, and you can see a rise in, in conviction and execution levels. So definitely there are these periods where governments are much less willing to use the power of pardon to reduce the number and proportion of people who are being hanged. Although one of the interesting things, if you look at the period from the middle of the 18th century through to the early 19th century, is that even allowing for that uptick, the proportion of people that's actually being hanged is more or less going down quite steadily. But that's partly because people don't think about proportions when they make their decisions. What they're really thinking about is what's the absolute number of people that you can hang on any one occasion without people being hellishly horrified. And if, as happens to be the case, you know, the population of the country and of London is growing spectacularly over the period, and that means the number of capital crimes that you have is growing as well, that means that the same number of people that you hang later on is a much smaller proportion than it would have been earlier on. There's an absolute low point, by the way, in capital convictions around about the middle of the, um, the Seven Years' War. That was a war I sort of mentioned. 80% of everyone convicted at the Old Bailey is hanged, but that's actually only eight people. Capital convictions fell really, really low in the middle of the war. In the middle of the 1780s, only about 50% of the people are hanged, but that's almost 100 people in two of those years. So that gives you an idea of, of how the proportions play out mm -hmm. against the absolute numbers. I think that officials were always thinking in terms of absolute numbers, because that's what really strikes people. There's a couple of occasions in the mid-1780s in London where literally 20 people are hanged at once outside of Newgate. They literally have two rows of 10 on a platform. The platform drops and 20 people go down at once. Oh. And it's quite clear that people are finding that very hard to swallow when mm -hmm. they see it, that it, it makes no kind of moral sense. Displays like that, you really have to go back about 200 years to find an occasion on which that many people were being hanged at once. But that's a an era where clearly the moral calculations about what the law could do and what people would tolerate the law doing are very, very different, you know, late in the reign of Elizabeth I. We have a handful of really nightmarish glimpses of what execution was like back then. You get these letters where the recorder of London back then talks about, well, we sent 18 people to be hanged yesterday, 
uh, this is one of the quietest sessions I've ever seen. So that gives you an idea of how many people they're hanging uh, yes. late in the reign of Elizabeth I. John, in your research, you've looked at the bloody code throughout the country. I was wondering, with Britain at the time being a nominally Christian country, were people in the church outraged by this harsh penal system? What they would have seen was, we live in a world where people are perfect, where people commit crime, and that, and that we need to punish people for that. They saw capital punishment as a necessary evil. And this is what people, I think, generally saw it as. They saw it as something which is distasteful, it's something which, which we rather wouldn't have, but it's all we've got. And what other options do we have? Well, we could have a, a more organised police force, but we don't want that because it's going to cost money and it will lead to a, a police state. And also, I mean, I'm doing some, I've done some work on this, and I'm, I'm doing some more work on this. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way because... And again, the work I've done on this is on, on the 19th century. But chaplains in the 19th century spent a great deal of their time with condemned inmates, getting them to admit that they were guilty and that they were a sinner and deserved to, to die. If a criminal admitted that, then the chaplain could say, well, there you go, that, that, that concerns what I thought. If the prisoner denies it, well, all that does then is confirmed to the chaplain. It just shows how wicked people are. And, and, and there are these kind of fantastically awful stories. I mean, one chaplain was struck off because he went into the condemned cell and got up with a candle and got a woman's arm, put it over the candle and said, admit the crime because what you're experiencing now is nothing compared to what the fires of hell will be like. Chaplains doing the condemned sermon, some of them had complaints made about them by the governors for being over the top, going on and on about death and punishment and hell and what will happen. What tends to happen is that the chaplains had a whole array of psychological and theological tools that they're able to take these people who knew that death is very close and to say, well, if you, if you admit guilt, you're going to heaven. If not, you're going to hell. What are you going to do about it? If they admit guilt, then it shows that what we're doing is right. If they don't admit guilt, it shows what horrible, what horrible people they are. And if they deny guilt, but admit it at the last minute, then it just shows what a great chapel I am because I can, I can bring a confession out. And you, you get people on the gallows with the condemned person with a rope around the neck saying, this is the final time I'm going to ask you, did you do it or did you not do it? And the example of Ruler in the 1840s, who said, no, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And just as the executioner's about to pull the, the trap door down, Mueller says, uh, like he's going to say something different. And the chaplain said, no, no, stop, stop, stop. And then, so chaplain spent a great deal of their time convincing themselves to the right question. It was seen as something that was a necessary evil, but which fit into a logic where if most prisoners on the gallows admitted to their guilt and said, I die a penitent sinner, it did the logic of the system. I've read reports from people like Charles Dickens talking about 18th century executions. And he was pretty disgusted by the whole process with the crowd there. I did an article looking at this. You've got Dickens and you've got Thackeray basically looking at London. So what I did is I looked at the crowds in Lancashire, Liverpool, Lancaster and Manchester. If you look at the reports of different execution, like side by side, some newspapers will say, well, this execution, the crowd were relatively peaceful and, and were decorous. 
other reports will say how terrible they are. So it seems that as we go into the 1840s and people and the, the campaign against capital punishment begins to become more influential and people will become to problematize more and more capital punishment, that the crowd becomes the main focus of concern. And in the 1860s, when you've got the Capital Punishment Commission and they're looking into, well, what can we do about capital punishment? They famously say, well, it's not our job to talk about abolishment or not, but they bring in those for capital punishment and those against capital punishment. And what both sides share in common is they don't like the execution crowd. They see them as loutish, as not being sufficiently decorous. They don't see them as taking from the ceremony of execution what the, the state wants to take from the ceremony of execution. You will get people who say, I'm all for capital punishment, but I wish we could do it in such a way the crowd wasn't there. And you'll get people who say, I'm all for abolishing capital punishment, and not least because of how awful the crowd is. The critics of capital punishment and the and those for capital, capital punishment both believed that the crowds were insufferably awful, but a lot of that was not only because of their behaviour, but because of the people who were there. So the people who were there tended to be people from, from lower social classes who were already instantly seen as awful anyway. So it's like awful people doing awful things. If the state wanted a solemn ceremony of justice and deterrence, yes, they were getting that in, on some occasions, but a lot of the time they were getting almost like, almost like, a, like, a, like, a, like a pop festival. We've got people crowd surfing, singing songs, throwing things in the air. No doubt crowds were acting in ways that the state, all things being equal, would want. But there is a lot of evidence to show that crowds were acting in respectful ways and also that, that some newspapers had an agenda in saying that crowds were awful because he's putting the narrative of kind of getting rid of capital punishment. So with the church seemingly on board with the bloody code, what caused the change in terms of the number of offences that were capital offences and the transition from this sort of bloody code? I'll, I'll put this in the book. My belief is we tend to think that change comes from the centre, that people in the centre, great thinkers, great politicians, whatever, have these ideas and then they roll it out across the country. The data that I've got shows that even before people start talking seriously about rolling back the bloody code in the 1820s, and particularly the 1830s, there was a realisation that there are all these capital offences that people have been executed for forever. So things like cattle stealing or sheep stealing or forms of larceny, unless you're in London, in most parts of the country, you, you weren't going to be executed. So I think there was more a realisation that change was happening in the periphery and the law had to reflect that. Vic Gattrall has written about this, is that as the number of people indicted rose after the Napoleon War, the state had two options. Well, you either execute more people, but that would be on an industrial scale. So Gattrall in his book Hanging Tree says that in the 1820s, they would have to have hanged one person every day just to kind of get to the backlog, it would have been a, a kind of bloodbath of, co of constant executions. And that there's a realisation by lawmakers that the populace wouldn't allow that. That there was always a realisation that each locale had its kind of tolerance level for how many people could be executed. Because the problem is, if you've got all these people indicted and found guilty of capital offences, if you execute more of them, then it's going to be a bloodbath. 
if you execute a small proportion of them, it's not deterrence, it doesn't work anymore. So what you need to do then is to grab the kind of nettle and say, well, as a system of deterrence, not working as a system of deterrence, we can't execute the number of people that we would need to enable to get the kind of 15% that you might find in London. So therefore, the system needs to change in some way. So you think Gattles, it's like a system that kind of like breaks down under its own way. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got 10% of people executed, that's fine if it's, it's a smallish number, but the number gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the 10% numerically gets bigger and bigger and bigger as well. And there's a realisation that there's no way you can go out into the rest of the country and execute people at the rate that you could execute people in London because the populace just wouldn't kind of stomach it. There just would be a backlash against it. And the backlash would be juries engaging more and more and more in Paris perjury so that the system would break down. So the system either breaks down at the level of the trial or it breaks down because we can't hang all these people. So something's going to give. And I think it's, it's at that point that the appeal begins to reform, begins to kind of rationalise the system by lumping these kind of different crimes together. And then in the next couple of weeks in the 1830s, they roll back all these capital offences. So that by the 1840s, all we're left with is murder, treason, arson, and the royal boatyards. Effectively, you're left with the murder. Stick around after this short break to hear details of the next episode. Do you ever wonder what would happen if, well, if... If you give a dad a podcast. I'm what you call a nerdy fan. I nerd out at this stuff. Hardcore. You'll hear me talk about anime on here. You'll hear me talk about Power Rangers. You'll hear me talk about wrestling on here. Okay. Had an axe handle with a twisted T on it. It's <laughs> right after that <laughs> twisted T video went viral. And man, they went out and grabbed it and smacked the dude in the head with it. It was so... That's great. I'd like to think of this podcast as a nostalgia moment for me. It's a show where I can talk about whatever I want. I'm a, I'm a human animal chiropractor. There was a picture of me. It looked like I was on the side of a ramen box over in China. But... <laughs> so I took my kids with me to Comic-Con. I thought that was really cool. Well, I don't know if my wife should listen to this podcast. We'll cut that part out. <laughs> you like, and then Robert said this. <laughs> if you give a dad a podcast, available now on all podcasting platforms. As Britain grappled with uneven enforcement of the bloody code, and while prison populations surged, Captain James Cook provided the country with an unexpected opportunity to offer a different kind of punishment to criminals. Next time, we explore transportation. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.